Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. All right, 1 Peter 2. So elect exiles, that's the big theme of 1 Peter, to be elect, chosen, selected, picked out, speaks to care and concern. Exiles, foreigners, strangers, temporary residents in a foreign land. We started looking at that last week. We'll be looking at it for the next five or six. It's the biggest, it's the middle chunk. Most of First Peter, he's trying to help his congregation see what it is to live. They're a very small minority. Uh, these churches are, they're meeting in people's homes. That's how small they are. You're talking about dozens of people, maybe in a city, you've got a few hundred, maybe. Very small minority, first generation of the church, first generation Christians in these places so that there's no history of the church. There's not the knowledge of the gospel is confined to this small group of people. They're being persecuted by the government. And Peter's trying to say, here's how I want you to be faithful in the midst of that circumstance, which is not not necessarily an easy thing to do. If you remember Matthew 13, 33 is, is one of the parables of the kingdom. Matthew 13 has got multiple parables. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who takes some yeast and mixes it into 60 pounds of flour. And eventually it works all the way through the dough. So I have just a little visual. If this helps you, most of us can't visualize 60 pounds of flour. This isn't 60. This is 30 pounds because I didn't want to take all of the flour at Kroger because some people probably needed it. So this is 60 or 30, this whole thing. And it's, you know, it's a lot. This is how much yeast you put in, according to the internet. One teaspoon per pound. If that's wrong, don't tell me. One teaspoon <laughs> per pound of flour. So this bit of yeast works through this whole thing of flour overnight. And it impacts, it causes the bread to rise. If this was dough, we add the water and the other salt that you add to make dough. This is you. This is the people that Peter is talking about. Relatively small in comparison to the broader community, the broader society. This, over time, I'm going to say the word wins. And what I mean is influences, impacts, changes, transforms. This little bit worked in over time impacts all of this. That's what Peter is trying to tell his congregations, these small, new, persecuted congregations. I don't know if they're struggling, but I know they're being squeezed. And what he's saying to them is, listen, general principle, abstain from sinful desires, that impulse that you have to live independently of God. You refrain from that and then live a good life. Be holy, follow Jesus, love God, love people. You know, you know what that means, live a good life. And over time, your neighbors, they're going to see those good deeds and it's going to cause them to turn to Jesus. It's not a week, it's not a month. In a lot of cases, it's not a year. It's years and decades. And we have the benefit of looking back and saying centuries. Societies are transformed by this, by a, a handful of people who live fully under the rule and reign of Jesus. Over time, this impacts all of this. That's what it means to be an exile. So as we're talking, that, that word may seem too um, kind of too theoretical for you, or maybe a bit too ambiguous, hard for you to grab onto. Remember this. This is you. This is where you live. And over time, 
the general principle that we saw last week, to live as an exile, is to abstain from sinful desires and to live a good life among your neighbors over a long period of time. This impacts this over time, not because we're awesome, but because the Holy Spirit is working in us and through us. Because truth wins. Because light overcomes darkness. So I want you to be encouraged as we're talking about this. And it's what Peter is trying to teach his congregation. Again, this, the, the general principle, and we're just looking at another specific this week. Last week, the specific was how do Christians relate to the government. We submit, we voluntarily yield to the government. We obey in all of the places where we can obey the government without disobeying Jesus. If there are places where to obey the government would cause us to disobey Jesus, then we disobey the government and we pay the consequences of that. And today we're going to look at another specific. What does it look like in the relationship? In this case, it's between slaves and masters. How do, what, what does an exile look like in that situation? What does it look like to be a little bit of yeast? What does it look like to abstain from my sinful impulses and to live a good life? So we'll start in verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it's, it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's the Father. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So it's the same general principle. Submission out of reverence for God with limits. A little bit of background, just same page. Peter is talking to household slaves. Honestly, they probably lean a bit more towards servants, if you can make a distinction between servants and slaves, but there's still property. There's another class of slaves that was in a completely way worse situation. Peter's talking to slaves who would have been part of a household, not the same as slaves in the American South. Again, still property, still owned by another person, so the, these household slaves would have, many of them were educated and were encouraged to be so because that benefited their masters. They were able to uh, earn their own money and eventually they could purchase their freedom. So again, a, a bit different than, Amer than slavery here in the American South, but still not great. Somebody owns you and they can treat you like property. And what Peter says to them is you need to, to willingly yield to your master. You need to obey them regardless of how they treat you. Whether they're good and considerate, that is whether they're kind, or whether they're harsh. That word harsh is where we get the word scoliosis from. If, if they're bent, if they're crooked, if they're unfair in some ways, that doesn't matter. Your, your responsibility is to submit to them. And you do that not because of their character, but because of your reverent fear, your deep respect for God. Your submission is rooted in your relationship with God, not rooted, in the not rooted in the character of your master. There are limits, for sure. There are limits, again, just like with the government. If, if, if obeying your master 
would cause you to disobey Jesus, then you don't have to do it. Again, that's part of that reverent fear. If God is ultimately the only one that we fear, he's the one that we have the most profound respect for. And if to obey an earthly authority would mean to disobey our heavenly father, then we disobey the earthly authority and we face the consequences. We embrace those consequences, whatever they happen to be. So it's the same principle that we saw last week. And then Peter gives some reasoning for that. Here's some rationale, some of the why behind it. One, it's, it's commendable to endure, to persevere, to bear up under unjust suffering. To suffer for doing good wins God's favor. It's something that he rewards. If you're being punished because you're doing wrong, well, there's no reward for that. You're getting what you deserve. But if you're being mistreated because, because you're doing good, because you're doing right, if it's unjust, God notices that. It's commendable. That is, it wins God's favor and it will be rewarded. But there's a more profound, a more fundamental reason that Peter is telling these guys, and he's right, some of his congregation, statistically, maybe even up to half of his congregation were household slaves. We don't know, but that was a, kind of the going rate in the Roman Empire at this time. One out of every two people uh, potentially was a slave. And so he's, he's writing to people who are in this situation. It's not theoretical. And most likely, at least some of them, have masters who are horrible. And they're being mistreated. And Peter is saying to them, yes, you will be commended by God, but there's even a more fundamental reason for you to submit to these cruel, crooked, bent, unfair masters. And that's because you were called to it. That's not what we think. We were called to be forgiven. We were called to be sons and daughters of God. We were called to live to abundant life. We were called to do good works that God has created for us in advance to do. We we're called to suffer unjustly. Have you seen that bumper sticker yet? Me either. That's not on anybody's t-shirt. We're called to suffer for doing good. That calling word, that, it's the same word. Elected, selected, picked, chosen. To suffer for doing good. Why? Because... Jesus is our example. That word example, if you remember back, maybe first grade when you're learning how to write and they had the little, you know, you had the dashed lines that made the letters and you had to trace them. That's what that word example means. It's that, it, it's the pattern that a kid uses to learn how to write his or her letters. And remember how closely you had to follow that. You didn't deviate. You had to, you had to do it right. Follow the pattern. And Peter is saying that's who Jesus is to us. He's the pattern. He's the example. He's the one that we emulate. We follow in his steps. And because he suffered for doing good, that means we suffer for doing good as well. That, we're following him. That's, that, this, is, this is part of the package. All of those wonderful things that we think about and talk about that are, that are totally true. This is also true. You very well may be suffering for doing good at some point. You very well may be treated unfairly. You may be suffering unjustly. And Jesus is our example. He's our pattern for how we respond. He was the only one who's sinless. He was the only one who was perfectly righteous. And yet he was arrested. He was falsely accused. He was mocked. He was beaten, tortured. He was killed. And in the midst of all of that, he didn't retaliate. 
He didn't issue any threats. He didn't say, well, when my dad finds out about this, he's lightning bolts from heaven. He didn't do any of that. He was silent. We just read it. Like a sheep before its shearers was silent. He never, he didn't open his mouth. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read those, the trials. He doesn't say anything to defend himself. Rather, he commended himself. He, he trusted the Father who judges justly. My Father will vindicate me, whatever that looks like. My Father will defend me, whatever that looks like. And what it looked like was watching him suffer and die, resurrecting him three days later. But certainly didn't pull him out of that fire, did he? That's the pattern for us. That's the example that we're to follow. That's the, the line that we're supposed to trace with our lives. When we suffer for doing good, when we suffer unjustly, when we're treated unfairly, our response is supposed to be the same as the response of Jesus. Why? Because this is us. We're a little bit of this. And when, a little bit, and when you're suffering for doing good, that takes notice. Nobody does that. It impacts that when people are willing to suffer for what they believe in, when they're willing to be treated unfairly, when they do so without defending themselves. That causes all of this to say, well, what's, what's going on with them? What is this? Who is this Jesus that they trust in enough that they're willing to be treated like this? And over time, that causes people to sit up and take notice. Peter's audience, congregation, those guys who are those household slaves, I think at that point are going, you, you don't know who my master is. I can't do that. Even if I wanted, I can't do that. I don't have the, the resources to do that. And Peter goes on and says, yes, you do. What Jesus has done for you his death doesn't just forgive you of your sins. It enables you to live righteously. That's verse 24. It enables you to follow him. Jesus rises from the grave and then 50 days or 40 days later, he ascends into heaven. And 10 days later, he pours his Holy Spirit out on his people who empowers us to obey, to live righteously. Jesus gives us the resources that we need to trace the line, to follow in his footsteps, for our lives to, to be patterned after his. He gives us what we need. It's not up to us to do that. He empowers us to do that. Peter's saying, you've got that. His death and his resurrection. Again, it's not just about the forgiveness of your sins. He empowers you to live righteously. And you're, you're looking. This is that song. I think I'm surrounded. I'm not seeing that I'm surrounded by you. If you want the background for that song, it's 2 Kings 6. You can read it this week. It's a great story. These slaves, they're looking and they're going, my master is terrible and he literally owns me. Literally owns me. I'm his property. He can do with me almost whatever he wants. There's some, there, there's some rules. I, I, nobody, I don't know if they were actually followed, but there were some things on paper that protected household slaves. But again, I don't know if they were ever honored or not. And Peter's saying to them, that's what you're seeing You've returned to the, she to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. That guy, that master, he, he's not the boss of you ultimately. There's someone else. There's an overseer, a guardian, 
someone who's watching over you. There's a shepherd, one who cares for you and who manages your life well. You might not be seeing that right now, but that's what's true. You can submit to this master even when he's harsh and cruel. Why? Because you've been enabled to do so. You can live righteously. You've been given the Holy Spirit who will, who will empower you to trace that line. And you're not astray anymore. You have a shepherd and an overseer who's above and beneath and before and behind that human earthly authority. He's a guardian of your soul. We talked about this last week. Don't be afraid of the one who can harm the body. If you're going to be afraid of somebody, be afraid of the one who can harm the body and then throw the soul in hell. That's your ultimate authority. It's Jesus, the overseer of your soul. So even if your body is being tortured, he, your soul is safe and secure with him. Your soul is your, it's your being. How does that connect to us? Praise God, we live in a free society. None of you are owned by anybody else. No slaves in here. So does this connect at all or is this just kind of a relic 2,000 years ago or maybe in other parts of the world where you got people are still engaging in this kind of behavior? I, would, I think the best parallel is employer-employee with some caveats. So your boss does not own you. You're not property. You can resign. You can find another job and change careers. If you're mistreated at work, that's why they have HR departments. Like, go, go to them. The people Peter's writing to, they, don't, they, can't, they can't quit. Maybe they can purchase their freedom, but it, even that takes the cooperation of their master when they earn enough money, and there's no HR department. You know, they have to basically take what their master gives them. That's not where we are, and so recognize that as we kind of make these applications. It's not the exact same. There's some significant differences between employer, employee, and slave and master. But the, the point that I do think is the same, the principle is learning submission to authority. And that is a principle in the kingdom. We are sons and daughters of God, and we're also slaves of Jesus. That's also a New Testament label, des designation that, that we have. It's throughout the New Testament. Paul calls himself a slave. Your Bible may say a bondservant. It's the same thing. And we're, we are as well. We're sons and daughters. We live in complete and full freedom. And we're slaves. And we follow that example. We're tracing that line with our lives. He's the pattern for us. And we want to follow in his footsteps. I'm going to lean that way today. I want you to hear all this. I know that you always do. Take it for kind of what it is. Um, but I do want to push a little bit. Particularly for those of you who are in difficult work situations. So uh, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, if you're a slave and you can be free, then be free. Get out of it. Better to be free than be a slave. And so some of you are in work situations, and, and they're not great. And I would say, if you can get out, get out. But there are times when you can't. Circumstantially, there may not be another job for you. And sometimes, and I do think this is true, God won't let you out. Like, you don't have a freedom, if you know what I mean by that. There's not a, 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 a release in your heart to move. It, it, you don't have peace to, to leave. You're not happy. You may even say you're miserable, but you don't feel from the Lord that it's okay for you to leave. And I think 
for, for most of us, I won't say everybody, although I do think it's everybody, but I, I, for most of us, there comes a time in our life where we experience that, where we have a human authority that doesn't treat us well. So ideally, we learn submission to authority at home, but for most of us, when we turn 18, we step out from underneath our parents to a large degree. We still call them when we need money, but in general, we're making our own decisions. You know, we, we maybe, when we move back, you know, when we come home for Christmas break, we, you know, do the curfew or whatever, but then the rest of the time, we're basically living independently of our parents. And no offense to anyone who's 18, but when you're 18, you're still a kid. I mean, it's true. Most of us, in terms of learning submission to authority as an adult, we've moved out from underneath the authority of our parents before we've actually become adults. Does that make sense? It's not a criticism. It's just the way that our society works. And so that leaves it oftentimes to our employer is the, is the place where we learn submission to authority. We don't necessarily learn it at home as an adult because most of us are out from underneath our parents by the time we are adults. And so it's usually that first boss, second boss, somewhere in there where we're learning submission to authority. And because even if our bosses are Christians, they're still fallen just like we are. And there are lots of ways they can be bent, crooked. Double standards, that may drive you crazy plays favorites, takes credit for your work, doesn't follow through on their promises. There are all kinds of ways that our bosses, again, even if they're believers because they're fallen, can be crooked. And then those that aren't, it can be even worse. And again, there are times where we're under that authority, we're treated unfairly. And what I think God would say to us is submit. I'm not talking about being abused. I'm talking about being treated unfairly. Those aren't the same thing. We're treated unfairly. And what God would say is, I want you to stay in there a little bit. First John says, if we don't love our brother and sister who we, haven't, who we do see, we're not going to be able to love God who we haven't. And I think submission to authority is similar. If we don't submit to the human authorities that we can see, we're not going to submit to our Heavenly Father who we can't. It's easier to disobey God than it is to disobey your boss. God's not going to fire you. And so one of the, I think, again, this is my opinion, a primary place where we learn this truth, what does it look like to be a slave to Jesus, is when we have a boss who's a bit crooked. Again, I'm not talking about being abused. I'm talking about being treated unfairly. And those, again, are not the same thing. If you can get out, get out. But there are times where you can't get out. And in those moments, the Lord, I think, wants to use that circumstance to shape you and form you. Now, if you're an employer, that's not permission to say, oh, that's how God wants to use me. So I get to be a jerk. That's not, don't do that. That's not helpful. You be the kind of person that others want to follow. But all of us at some point, again, I think we're under, we're under authority and we have to learn to submit to that. If that's you, there's a book, super easy read, one night. Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. Saul, David, Absalom. Pick it up if, if, if that's you. If you're in that situation right now, it, would, it will help encourage. I think it will encourage you and it will flesh this idea out a little bit. There's no magic. If that's you right now, really the only things to do are to ask God for grace to submit on a daily basis 
and to remember you have a shepherd and overseer for your soul and it's Jesus. Your boss is not the ultimate boss of you. But there is something, again, there's a, there's a lesson there for us that I think is important. Some of you, many of you, are, you're not in that spot. Maybe that's something in your past or for whatever reason doesn't resonate. Zoom out a little bit. This idea of Jesus being the pattern. I'm wondering for us, in what places is he not our example? In what places are we not tracing his life with our life? One of the easiest ones that you can see in the Gospels is the way he prays. Do we pattern our prayer life after his prayer life? You can think of something like the Lord's Prayer, which is actually a pattern. When the disciples say, teach us how to pray, he says, here's, here's the pattern. Two of the things that I take from the Lord's Prayer, one is we approach God as our Father, our Father who is in heaven. And two, we're inviting him to get involved in our life and in our world. Prayer is not informing God about things he doesn't know. It's inviting him to get involved. All of these situations, super practical. Food, daily bread, forgiveness, your kingdom coming. It's, again, it's very, very practical stuff. It's the stuff of everyday life. And Jesus says, invite, invite the Father into those things. The Gethsemane prayer, the, that, that's, that's the posture. Take this cup from me. That's what I really want. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. That's our posture in prayer. It's this really uh, authentic or raw honesty. This is the thing that I want. Remember, Jesus is sweating blood. That's how much. Hebrews, I think it's five, says he's cry, he, he prays with loud cries and with tears. This is an intense moment for him. For most of us, we again, if, if you were raised in church, that makes a lot of us uncomfortable. We jump straight to God, if you will. God, what you want. And on one hand, we think that's us being humble and submissive. Usually what it is, it's a reflection of a lack of trust in the Lord and a lack of relationship with him. We don't tell him what we really want either because we think we can't or we think he's, not, he's gonna disappoint us. And so we just keep those things in. We keep these large portions of our heart away from him. That Gethsemane prayer, that again, if we're tracing Jesus with our prayer life, then it's not every day, but there should be some times in your life where you're sweating blood, met metaphorically, where you're saying to God, I really, 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 I wanna see this. Again, not everything is that deep, but some things are that deep. And are you bringing that to him before you say, your will be done? Are you first saying, this is, what, this is what I want to see. This is where I want you to work. Ultimately, it's what you want. But as your son, as your daughter, this is what I want. And then you see Jesus in terms of creating space to pray. And he does that. He prays early in the morning and he prays late at night. One, there's at least one time he prays all night long. So if he prays all night long, what's he not doing? Sleeping. He's not sleeping. He doesn't just get to flip the God switch the next day and say, like he's tired the next day. For us, time is our most precious resource, I think, even more than money. Any time you spend praying is time that you're spending not doing something else. It's always a sacrifice. Multitasking is a myth. You have a 100% attention span. 
And so if you give that 100% to one thing, that's great. And if you give it to three things, you haven't multiplied your attention. You just divided it across three things. Which is, if, the, if, if, if where you are now, if, if it's praying while you're doing something else, that's better than not praying at all. My challenge and encouragement during this season of Lent would be carve out some time where you're not doing anything else. Don't make it all night. You won't, you'll fail. And you'll fall asleep and you'll feel guilty. Start with something that's a little bit more attainable. If you're a night owl, do it at night. If you're an early bird, do it in the morning. If you normally wake up at 6, try 5.30 between now and Easter. Take the weekend off if you need to. But try, but try to get up 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes earlier and spend that time with him. Let the Lord's Prayer be the pattern for how you pray. If you run out of things to pray, it's okay. Listen to a worship song. Read your Bible. Write some things down in a journal. Just be quiet. Tell the Lord, I still got 20 minutes left. What am I, you know, what do I do? See how he leads you. He may tell you, get up. Begin to create some of that dedicated alone time with him. Again, if we think about who Jesus is, if it was something that he did, and maybe on some level we would even say something he needed, well, how much more for us? Don't hear that as guilt at all. It's just an opportunity to say, I want to pattern my life around him. We see in 1 Peter 2, here's the pattern for dealing with unjust suffering. It's not retaliating. It's not threatening. It's committing ourselves to the Father and his judgment. We also see in the Gospels, here's a pattern for prayer. The Lord's Prayer gives us some structure, and the Gethsemane Prayer gives us some posture. And then all of Jesus' life gives us, it speaks a bit about the logistics around that. Again, creating space on a regular basis and at key moments to be alone with the Lord. And sometimes that is significant time. Sometimes it's, it's more than just 10 or 15 minutes. And I want to encourage and challenge you. Lent's a great time to pick some of these things up. If you gave up TV, what else are you going to do anyway? So I would encourage you to engage in that level. And there's, there's other things, other places to pattern our life around him, but we, um, we, we actually need to wrap up. So uh, I want us to pray, and we're going to pray about three things. One is surrounded. So that song... I'm wondering, for some of you, if you wouldn't mind going ahead and closing your eyes just so you can begin to focus a little bit more. I'm wondering and I'm thinking that there's at least a handful of you and probably a bit more than that who feel isolated. So your brain your mind knows you're not. You know God is with you. He never leaves you or forsakes you. But your experience today, right now, if you're honest, is I feel cut off. I feel alone. I feel isolated. I feel surrounded by enemies, not by the Lord. And if that's you, we want to invite you to come forward for prayer. And the prayer teams, what they're going to pray very simply is that God would open your eyes to see the reality that he surrounded you. That's that second king's prayer. Greater are those who are with us than those who are with the enemy. It's not to say that you're not surrounded by things that would oppose you, but it's to say that you're also surrounded. You're more profoundly surrounded by Jesus. And we want to pray that your eyes would be opened to that. For some of you, you're in a very difficult work situation. And right now, there's no, there, there is no door number two. You're kind of stuck. 
And we want to pray 1 Corinthians 7, if you you can be free to get free. But until that day comes, that God would give you grace to submit in in a difficult situation. Maybe even to a difficult person. That God would use this difficulty to form you and shape you and teach you what it is to be a bondservant or a slave of Jesus. And I want to pray this, and if you're willing, you can pray it with me. Holy Spirit, would you show me an area of my life where I'm not following the pattern closely, where my life is not tracing Jesus's life? It may be prayer. It may be something else. If something comes to your mind and you're, you're willing to, to deal with that, I would encourage you to let us pray for you or you may just want to come and kneel here at the altar and we'll leave you alone. You've got to work that through with the Lord. Something like, I confess that I've, I'm maybe being a little bit too loose in this area. I'm not following you closely. And would you give me the grace to do that? Pray that you forgive me. And I pray that you give me grace to, to walk more closely behind you. I do think this, and again, you, you may disagree. I do think initially there is this really, there's this very kind of strict following of him. And over time, as he forms and shapes our hearts, I feel like there is a bit more freedom for us. And it's not freedom to do our own thing at that point because we're so conform to his image our thing actually is his thing and so but 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 initially in almost every area of our life again it's just like when you were learning how to write you got you got to trace the lines eventually you can put your own little squigglies on it and all that but initially you're tracing the lines because you got to learn how to write the letter and so for some of us that's that's where we are in different places of our life and we need to kind of recommit to saying You're the master in this. And so I'm going to submit to you. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you work in our hearts? Would you lead us, guide us, direct us? I want to pray particularly for those who are feeling surrounded by enemies, that they would be encouraged and filled with hope, that they would see clearly that you're the one who's surrounding them. In Jesus' name, amen. for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 